I had a great time talking to Drs. Laird Edmond and Myron Penner. Laird Edmonds, a professor of psychology at Northwestern College, specializing in cognitive science of religion, critical thinking, emotional intelligence, and a lot of other things. Dr. Myron Penner is a professor of philosophy at Trinity Western University, and until 2023, he's a visiting professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. Myron and Laird have teamed up on many projects. They collaborate on a lot of psych science integrated philosophy and theology projects. We had a great conversation where we talked about a lot of topics, about what a collaboration between a scientist and a philosopher slash theologian could look like, some of the challenges and some of the benefits of the collaboration. We also talked about some of their work on psychology of worship practices and how our worship practices shape us and how the psychology of ritual can inform our worship practices and a lot of other fun stuff. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Laird and Myron. So how did you guys get to know each other initially? Was it Notre Dame or just make up <laughs> no. a story if it's not yeah, interesting, yeah, right. okay. <laughs> no, it, it was Justin Baird who brought us together. Oh, really? Oh, no way. Yeah, he, he was doing a uh, one of those Calvin se- summer seminars on the cognitive science of religion. And, and Christianity. And I, yeah, uh, and yeah, cognitive science of religion and Christianity. And uh, Myron and I both had signed up. So we spent several weeks together in beautiful Grand Rapids in the summer and uh, started kind of enjoying each other. <laughs> Although I thought Myron was just this sweet, somewhat quiet guy. So apparently he was really fooling all of us. You know, we came back the next summer and had another week together and uh, that kind of solidified our friendship. But then what really did it was then we were both part of the Bridging Two Cultures uh, seminar at Oxford in the summer of what, 2015 and 2016. And so we spent quite a bit of time at Oxford getting to know each other arguing about pretty much everything under the sun over beers at various pubs because we had to try them all. And so we became uh, dear friends. And I was then starting work on a a grant to put together a a kind of a book proposal or at least do some extensive work in cognitive science of religion and Christian faith. And I asked Myron if he would join in on that because I thought he would be great at this. He said, sure. So we've had some collaborative kind of work. When I think back to that first Calvin College seminar, though, that was really like, uh, I mean, you know, Laird's a legit psychologist. I had gotten interested in psychology, particularly cognitive psychology and and, uh, a lot of the stuff coming out of cognitive science of religion, just because as a philosopher, it was starting to become more prominent in the things that I was reading uh, with respect to philosophy of religion. You know, what does the science impact on, you know, how we should think about faith in general and Christian faith in particular. And, and so that, that first seminar with Justin was just such a great, it was, it was two weeks basically of him just kind of informing us as a cohort in that group uh, about CSR, its history, its beginnings, its key findings. And it was just a really quick way to get up to speed on the literature 
and uh, to meet cool people like Laird and others who coming were coming at the, the the psych science with different you know levels of of engagement with it. So it was uh, yeah, it was very very pivotal. This was that was the summer that Justin was coming back from Oxford, so he yes. and he was on his way to Fuller. Gotcha. So you guys both got excited about that field of study, cognitive science of religion. Can you each say something about like how it sort of ignited your intellectual imagination or however you want to put that? Sure. For me, I had been doing research in two different areas up to that point, um, looking at uh, sort of critical thinking, uh, pedagogy and measurement and emotional intelligence, because what got me really interested in cognitive psychology was um, issues of how do we teach young people to think well and so I'd been doing research in this area for maybe a decade. And honestly, I was bored with it. And I was looking for something, I, kind of a new research program. This came across my desk, this Calvin seminar. And I thought, oh, this sounds fantastic. Because I had just taught uh, Justin's book, Why Would Anyone Believe in God, in a psych of religion class and thought, this is amazing. I, this, this, this material was so exciting to me. So then I decided, let's find out. And then that seminar just blew it up for me. It's like, uh, it, it became clear that, no, this is going to be my research paradigm from now on, because this, this is a way I can do really excellent cutting edge work in psychology that also is about faith. It's about the things that move me. It's about my main, my primary loves. And in the end, I would hope it'd be advantageous for the church something I could give to the church. Yeah, for me, it was a book called The Believing Primate, and Justin has some contributions in, in that, but where you have uh, philosophers and theologians and psychologists looking at the models coming out of CSR and kind of thinking through what it what it tells us about the religious life of people and how that may or may not connect to how the world really is. And uh, that I started using that book in one of my courses and becoming familiar with the literature. And uh, it, it just, it was interesting to me because in the classroom, you know, as in, in philosophy classes, philosophy of religion, we tend to look at arguments, you know, for and against different claims that are presented and that are see, taken to be significant for, you know, for what we should think is true about God and, and the religious life. And it was really interesting, you know, teaching CSR, even at an introductory level, uh, as a non-expert to, to students, and seeing kind of their minds turning and just really, you know, both having them think that, wow, this is very helpful in understanding their own kind of religious experience, both personally and corporately, because it helps give some kind of cognitive language to our whole range of experiences. But also it really, uh, you could see you know, a bit of a deer in the headlights kind of look where they're thinking, because I can give a very good kind of natural explanation for all of these religiously significant things, what does that do for my faith, right? And and so, yeah, so that, so that immediately I began to kind of see the, the power of, you know, psych science to kind of connect to philosophical and theological questions. Yeah. That's really good. When you talk about uh, different theological issues just on their own, it seems like every conversation you have is only relevant to, you know, like a certain group of people, like a very small number of people will, will care about this or like, like how the Trinity works, or if you even think there is a Trinity, you know what I mean? But when you're talking about cognitive science of religion, you're talking about by nature of the field, it's you're talking about human nature, you're talking about everybody. If you're a human being, then 
you know, these things apply to you and, and affect you just to make it sort of real practical. So, so there's some really interesting conversations to be had. And <laughs> I probably know a lot about the subfield from a role as a proofreader. <laughs> Myron and I have what we call the Uber test on the work we've done. And that is when we were collaborating and, and working on writing some things together, uh, we would be in a location, staying together, working. And uh, we would, if we'd taken Uber anywhere, we'd get in the Uber, the Uber driver would say, well, what are you folks here for? And then we'd talk about the cognitive science of religion and the work we're doing. And in every case, everyone, even, you know, baristas, <laughs> they would say, that is really interesting. But if we said, well, we're working on issues of the Trinity and how God can be a community, and then they would kind of glaze over. It's like, wow, yeah, not interesting. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. When you talk about issues of CSR, it kind of rings a bell for people because they want to know, well, yeah, why are people like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, bef just before uh, COVID hit, I'm not sure if you're aware, but we're we're in a pandemic, right? So <laughs> not in Iowa. It's <laughs> not don't. real in Iowa. <laughs> But we, uh, Laird and I, were able to give some presentations in different uh, venues where, um, you know, uh, seminaries or uh, institutes for Christian worship, where you've got people who are have experience and vocational kind of calling to to work in church settings, and just presenting some ways in which the uh, the, the data from cognitive psychology can can kind of help uh, understand you know people in worship contexts, for example, or in different Christian ministry contexts. And the the response was very strong from people in the room to say this is this is uh, very relevant to where they live and breathe. So that was that was kind of exciting to see too. Yeah, so there's lots of applications to matters of faith where people kind of live and breathe if you understand kind of the life of the mind in certain ways. Interesting. Cool. Well, yeah, I did read in one of Laird's bios <laughs> about that project where you guys are working on kind of a best practices or something for, for church leaders. Could you guys talk a little about that psychology of worship or something like that? Or how are you guys... How are you guys? What's your elevator pitch on that one? Well, so in Oxford, uh, and this was uh, let me let me speak for Laird now. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, uh, one of the big kind of things that he was working on during those two summers in Oxford was to kind of craft a proposal for you know a, a set of topics that would really be of of significant use to the church, right, and to uh, Christian leaders, ministry leaders, uh, in, interested lay people who would benefit from understanding the findings uh, from psychology about how you know we work at a species level with our with our minds and how that can help us understand and navigate kind of religious space. And so um, you take it from there, Laird. What we're interested in and and what the project we've been working on has to do with. Cognitive science of religion, you know, the people who do research in the cognitive science of religion generally aren't doing it in order to help people who are religious. They're, they're doing it to help explain why in the world are people religious, partly because many of the people in cognitive science of religion themselves are not religious, and it's a little mystery to them why the most of the world is. Now, this is, you know, I mean, Justin Barrett is one of the, uh, one of the exceptions, and he He's the one of the people who pulled me into this research. But the work in the kind of science religion can be extremely important for us to understand both why people respond the way they do to particular religious practices and how to help them develop more depth and um, more sophistication in their own faith, in their discipleship, and in their practice. So 
here's an example, and I, I hope I, I don't insult anyone, and undoubtedly someone's going to be annoyed by this, but the, the kind of average large evangelical megachurch does worship in a particular way that is very good at drawing people in because it kind of ties into essentially the pop culture, and it's a pop culture worship. What we know from the cognitive science of religion is that people's intuitive understandings of what a ritual means and how it works and what they get out of it is something that operates not on, the, on a conscious level, but it also operates to help them understand what is going on in this worship service. When an evangelical megachurch does worship with all this sensory pageantry, but it isn't the kind of worship that requires that kind of sensory pageantry, like say a wedding, mm. that requires sensory pageantry, then people begun, begin to get disconnected from the worship. And we end up with an entire generation of people who, when they move to a new city, go church shopping. And then if they're at a church that, you know, they don't like the current worship leader, they don't like the pastor, they'll leave and go church shopping again. And the kinds of rituals that are happening do not sort of deeply embed connection with that worshiping community just sort of into their bones like ritual is supposed to. One of the main aspects or facets of ritual is social cohesion. But the way evangelical medical churches do ritual, it does not lead to social cohesion. And so this is one of those things where we now know from the cognitive science of religion, how ritual operates on a sort of a cognitive level. And churches should know this information if one of their goals is to build social cohesion. And the other goal is cross-generational transfer of the faith. Young people are leaving the church by the tens of thousands. And this is part of the reason. And when I talk to young people at the college level, the last thing they want is one more church that feels like a rock concert. And so uh, this is an area then where we can explain what, what might be going on at a cognitive level that can be useful for church leaders. There's like a few different directions I want to go after you guys both saying that there's, there's the sort of the dual processing question, line of questioning. And there's also sort of some like free will agency question, which maybe I'll do first because we all participate in rituals all the time that no one questions at all. And we encourage people, we encourage other people in all kinds of institutions or groups to do these rituals, you know, and we know they have practical benefits. There's all these self-help books about rituals and building habits and building communities around habits and habit formation. And, you know, we teach our kids to do these things and and nobody questions it. No, everyone's like, yeah, singing in a big group, that's great. But at what point does that kind of like encouragement in these organizations or groups become manipulation where you're like limiting people's... So, and I used to feel... So I used to The end to feel justifies the means, Siri. If the end is good, <laughs> we can there just, you know... <laughs> if it's for a good cause, manipulate away. Well, that's, that's right. That's that's the answer a lot of times, right? It's so subjective, you know? And I grew up in a, a tradition that was very, very suspicious of emotional engagement in worship altogether. They was almost like they were 
trying to avoid that, you know, but then I got older. I'm like, oh, it's okay to go to a church where, you know, they dim the lights during worship or, you know, <laughs> whatever these cognitive things are that we, we, you know, change our environment so that it's easier for us to focus. Like, that's okay, yeah, right? You know? Great. <laughs> right. So what do you think about discerning that? Like if there's like a good or bad or where is free will in, infringed upon or what do you guys think about that? I think that's an interesting point. I think so one of the one of the key kind of insights I've taken away from from cognitive science is just the idea that the mind is not a blank slate and that we come into the world of experience not hardwired per se because that suggests that that you know our cognitive mechanisms can't change over time, which is which is not true. But we come into the world of experience kind of predisposed towards certain tendencies, right? And, so, and, that, and as a result, that makes some things easier to get a cognitive grip on, easier to believe, easier to intuit, and easier to kind of make more comfortable for us, requiring less effort to kind of grasp onto. And But it also makes other things quite hard to latch onto cognitively to kind of maintain uh, and sustain over time, right? So that's just part of, of our, you know, biophysiological makeup, right? And, and so becoming aware of that and just, you know, using that, that insight to say, well, what kinds of practices then do have a easier cognitive fit with us, given who we are in order to, you know, communicate things that we think are worth communicating in order to develop habits that we think are life-giving and life-sustaining? What kinds of, of things have, have an easier cognitive fit with us? That's, that I think is just wise, you know, and, and informed way to kind of structure events and practices and communities. Can, can that, so, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of my initial response. Like if you're, if you're a boss and you're doing a training at your company and you want people to remember certain principles, it's not manipulative to learn something about human memory and to form your training in a way that will help your employees understand Right. right. You've got your four key things. It forms an acrostic and that's an easier kind of mnemonic device. Is that manipulating? Are you removing their agency because of and, and it's important to remember, and this, you know, I'm not a huge fan of B.F. Skinner, except he's really important and did really great work. And and when people would critique him by saying, Your proposals want to take away our free will by manipulating the contingencies of reinforcement, his response always was, Well, no, you are always going to respond to how you are reinforced. So the question is, how, how do you choose the reinforcement? And, and then we can expand that in cognitive sciences that it, it, to kind of refer to maybe Jamie Smith's book on you are what you love. He pretty much is laying out kind of from this sort of theological philosophical perspective coming out of Augustine. What we're talking about here is that you are going to love something. You are going to be drawn to something you were going to respond to the rituals and liturgies in your life. The question is, which rituals and liturgies are you going to choose to form you? And so we want to choose rituals and liturgies and ways of formation that have been sort of carefully, thoughtfully designed to lead in ways we think are good ways. And this is, I mean, and this is the struggle. It's like the struggle for parenting you know your children are gonna be formed by something. So you have to choose kind of what, 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 what forming influences you allow in your house. Does that mean you're manipulating your children or does it mean you're raising your children? Right, 
That's good. To, to paraphrase Spider-Man, though, with, with great knowledge comes great responsibility, right? And so once you are aware of the power of certain ways of communicating, then, you know, you really do want to be responsible kind of stewards of that. Oh, right. Certainly. I have a colleague who teaches social psychology and deals with some of these issues. And, and she says she always tells her students, okay, I'm going to teach you how to form and run a cult, but I don't <laughs> want you to do that. <laughs> because th these are the these are the things. Right. So that's why our communities need to be healthy and have systems of accountability so people can know if they're taking things a little too far or whatnot. Which, once again, I'm going to step on some toes here and say the non-denominational church that has no hierarchy and, and accountability structure is a recipe for disaster. Well... Just or it's it's a it's a different type of hierarchy, right? So you there is there is a certain hierarchical structure, but without if if there are structures without transparency and accountability yep. and and that that's it's a recipe for lots of biases that get manifested to be used for the kinds of things that that you're kind of alluding to. Yeah, if they become cults of personality, then we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes there is like a little plurality of pastors, but it's like an echo chamber <laughs> where they just keep yeah, reaffirming one another. But anyway, okay, maybe let's go to the dual processing part of this. And you guys can kind of sort of speak to how that relates to what you're talking about. Myron, you brought up in your email something about theology being more functioning in system two and but our actual practice and experience of religion and spirituality often happens more in system one or you know, maybe you guys could connect to that or just explain for the people at home what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I think one, one of the insights in uh, cognitive psychology over the last several decades is that if you want to, to sort kind of mental processes or cognitive processes into different types, they, they, they seem to fall within one grouping. You use the language system one, system two, let's, let's go with that where we have an range of men we have a, an array of mental tools that operate really quickly intuitively fast relatively low effort and it is designed to respond quickly to various stimuli to give us cognitive content that does work for us kind of helps us navigate our environment in very quick and and fast ways. We also have an array of mental processes that can be grouped under system two. And these are more reflective, slower processes where, you know, when you when you really think really hard about something, or you, you put the mind's eye onto a specific topic and you and you ask yourself, what is it that you think and you reflect and you engage those processes? That's a, that's a different type of, of cognition that's going on. And what I was just saying earlier is that when it comes to the religious life, a lot of the cognitive mechanisms that's that you know underwrite and support and sustain our our propensity to believe in gods uh, comes to us from system one when it comes to like you know, we've mentioned the trinity before that's you know coming uh, uh, articulating and trying to grasp and grapple with a, a, a doctrine of the trinity for example is is uh, a really you know effortful cognitive kind of process that is housed within system two. And it's not to say that that system two is is unimportant or not relevant or not relevant for the for the religious life. It's just that it's a different type of, of cognition that's being engaged. And a lot of the things that drive that draw us to a belief in gods and bind us to each other in in uh, religious communities are operating at system one. 
So Laird, you correct all the mistakes I made and flesh out all the, uh, the gaps. Does he get an A, a B plus maybe? Yeah, that, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And, you know, he was careful not to reify these two systems as if they are sort of, you know, parts of the brain that operate differently. And that's that's one of the dangers in talking about system one and system two thinking is there's a tendency then to think that, oh, there's a part of the brain that does system one and another part of the brain that does system two. That That's not what we're implying or saying here. We're, we're saying these are just, it's a useful Shorthand. Uh, descriptor, uh, shorthand to talk about. There are all kinds of ways that we sort of respond, sense, intuit, all kinds of stimuli in our lives. So for example, you're at a party, you meet someone new, you talk to them for five minutes. Later, you think, I like that person. But it would be difficult to figure out why. That's That's a lot of what we'd call system one in operation. And then you know you dig into system two to say, well, why? Why was I drawn to that person? What about that person is seemed likable? And and you have to kind of think through what that is. But system one is going to be operating all the time because humans have to make decisions constantly, far faster than we can possibly manage. I mean, now I'm going to get you know pseudo technical here. You've got about 11 million bits of information per minute coming in through your senses you can attend to about 40 of them. <laughs> so that's your attentional resources. But it doesn't mean the other, you know, 10 million yada, yada, yada are just disappear. There are parts of your brain, I mean, a lot of it's just you know, not, not important, but there are parts of your brain that is, that's attending to a lot of this stuff, but it isn't happening sort of thoughtfully or reflectively. And it has to happen or you can't survive. You can't function in the world. So that, that sort of, perhaps non-conscious stuff. And I, I don't want to use the word unconscious because then, you know, sometimes people kind of drift to Freud and I just want to say, don't do that. Yeah. No, what, 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 I'm, what I'm getting at is that we train our intuitions and, and kind of one of the psych terms that's used is our heuristics, our, our mental shortcuts. So we train them to work faster so that we can be more efficient in living our lives. But those intuitions lead us to think things that we, we don't know how we got there. It doesn't mean they're irrational or non-rational. It just means that we didn't use active reason to get there. And so those intuitions tend to be tend to map onto a lot of the reasons why, perhaps, pretty much every culture the world has known has had some aspects of belief and behavior that we call religious. It's easy for the human mind, the human brain, to sense invisible supernatural agents out there. That, that's an easy step. It's not that we're hardwired to sense those supernatural agents, but that the way our brains work make it easy to sense supernatural agents. Well, well and sense might not be the right word, but yeah, to, I mean, to kind of, when, when you put kind of the mental tools that we have in virtue of the the way our the meat between our ears is structured, it just makes it really easy to to engage in all sorts of beliefs that are deemed religious and practices and behaviors too. And so that's just part of the, the the mental makeup that we come into the world with. I mean, you know, things like being able to navigate social spaces and to infer what people are thinking just based on how their face looks, right? To be able to kind of look at certain events in the in the in in our environment and just assume that there's some kind of purpose of agent that was responsible for those things, right? That 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 kind of stuff and 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 that just kind of 
inclines us to look at a beautiful sunset and to think, well, that just couldn't just pop into to being. That must have been, you know, authored by by some some cosmic artist, right? Or other kinds of events that we navigate in life. It's there's just a real uh, propensity we have to attribute purpose and design to things in in all sorts of environments, including at a cosmic level. And then you you add to that different ways in which we want to kind of, you know. Uh, remove cognitive dissonance, fill in explanatory gaps. And this is where a bit of the system one, system two kind of communication happens where we want to flesh out the explanatory stories in, in our in our own world to kind of help us make sense of things. And that too kind of is is a way that makes the religious life appealing, right? Because it's inference rich. It has explanatory power that that is that is satisfying not not just at an uh, at an emotional level, but at a cognitive level, right? So that we don't have, if things can if we can put things into a, a story that makes sense to us and helps us make sense of our world, then that you know has has benefits to us as a, as an organism. Like what kind of benefits? Laird would know more of this, just, you know, add a, a sense of, of well-being, a sense of fit into the world. It also has benefits in terms of helping us bind to groups that will help us survive and reproduce communities of interest. You know, the things that make just religion as a phenomenon successful can be used for good or for, for ill. I mean, it, uh, religious, you know, binding is very helpful in defining who's in your in your group right and nothing helps you define who's in your group more than being able to say who's not in your group right and so there's some in-group out-group <laughs> kind of stuff that religion is is uh uniquely not if not uniquely but certainly helpful for and that has you know opportunities for good but also for bad too theologically if we believe god is active in the world it's important that we have sort of cognitive architecture that it sort of gets us vigilant to see that. The downside, of course, is that the vast majority of the people in the world believe in ghosts. And theologically, no, that you know, there aren't disembodied spirits sort of floating around of our dead ancestors who are depends you know, on ready your, to hide. Depends you know, on clothes. your theology. <laughs> <laughs> and here's here's where the system two and the system one need to then interact and inform each other. And so cognitive science of religion and these these processes cannot tell us what is really out there. And that's that's the key where the our theology and I I grudgingly have to say, you know, philosophers have to help us kind of work through what what can we say and what can't we? Although, you know, unlike Myron, I, I grew up Lutheran with a tinge of Pentecostalism, which is a very interesting combination. So as Martin Luther said, reason is a prostitute who goes wherever, who pays her more. So, you know, <laughs> I just like the Myron there. Yeah, I see. I get what you guys are saying. It's like, you know, it's sometimes tempting to be like, oh, this is evidence. Like God made us like this so that we would yeah. believe in God, you know. But then the, the counter example with, with ghosts yeah. is a so good they're, one. They're, There's other things that we are cognitively inclined to that we wouldn't therefore go, well, then that must be how it's supposed to be, you know. Yeah. Um, and the is is not the ought. So sure, sure. So but because this is under the the tent of theopsych, where we're actually trying to robustify, which maybe is not a word, our theology and our thinking about now. God. 
with the tools of psychology and let's include CSR in that, you know? So what kind of moves can you make or do you think we can make as speaking as, as people of faith? I don't know. Take that wherever you want. I know that's- well, I think, I mean, I mean, I think often in a variety of different, you know, theologically significant settings, whether it's in a church service, whether it's in a home group, whether it's just over beers with people that you know, and you're talking about, you know, life and faith and God and the good life. There are lots of times where, where a statement is made and it's put within kind of a theological context and, and it's actually an empirical claim, right? It's, it's actually the kind of thing that, that people have studied using scientific methods and you might think that some claim is true because it's what you've been taught within your kind of theological upbringing or your background, or you just might have this kind of gut feeling. Uh, and it might be true, but it might actually not be supported by our best kind of investigative tools. And so I think really, for me, like if, if we're wanting to, that, that's, that's really a big part of the, the, the Theopsych project is just being aware, first of all, of you know, what kind of research is being done across psychological science to help us understand the human, human mind and human persons, and then to kind of be able to identify when a theological claim is, 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 is being made that actually has an empirical kind of component to it. So, you know, you know, claims about gender roles, for example, men and women, you know, claims about human nature, human minds, or what people are like, claims about how people come to faith, people claims about what you know, what are the kinds of things that sustain a, a rich kind of inner spiritual life over time? Well, there's actually lots of research that that helps kind of rule out certain ways that, of thinking about those things that suggest other ways of thinking about things. And that's that, that's a real, I think, the project of, of robustifying our mm -hmm. theology. Do you have anything to add to that, Laird? Well, and not much. I mean, that's like, yep, that's it. <laughs> But there's also this sense that things we learn about how humans' minds work also then give us some, some cautions. That is, it's really easy to say, look, I, I sense the presence of God here and God is moving. And, you know, you said you grew up in a tradition that really was quite suspicious of emotion. Well, the reason those traditions arose is because of overuse of emotion to make claims about God's action in the world that then later turned out to be not so true, maybe. And so that's that, you know, the, the, the religious tradition itself has so many uh, examples of the results of people reacting to our cognitive architecture, either for good or for ill. And so understanding how our, how our minds, how our cognitions tend us towards believing in some ways and away from believing in others is useful in helping us to understand uh, just how to engage in better discipleship. Why is it that people have such a tough time with certain religious concepts like you know, grace? Grace is a concept that just, I mean, you know, I, I, I tell the story of a, a friend of mine who was a, a Lutheran pastor. They're so big on grace. He was in a congregation and a guy who had been a Lutheran his entire life came up to him, he was in his 70s, and he said, well, I think I've been good enough, Pastor. I haven't done anything really terrible. I kind of think I might go to heaven because I, 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 I haven't sinned too much. And, you know, for a Lutheran, it's like, ah, no, 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 no. And this guy had been in a Lutheran church his entire life. Why is it that he probably heard 
hundreds of sermons on grace and it never penetrated. Well, we can kind of explain that cognitively because our intuition, whenever you're dealing with a powerful other, is social exchange. That's, that's the default because you'd better be able to offer something to get something, especially if the other has a lot of power. That's, right. that's our intuitive, intuitive default. And that's, if we don't understand, that's where people will intuitively go. Then we, we don't understand what we have to do. But then the kind of cool thing about that is that children don't have that intuition. It's, it's one that develops with adulthood, which makes a wonderful case for why Christ said, unless you enter the kingdom as a little child, because mm. children are never worried about whether or not they need to give grandma a gift because grandma gave them one. It's like social exchange isn't the issue. They just say, oh, thank you, and they grab it and run. <laughs> just It's like, no, we need to be more like that in dealing with God. Hmm. That's really interesting. I, lo- I mean, a lot of these exchanges ha- like kind of go in a zigzag sometimes, right? Because like if you're at that that little home group or Bible study and someone says something, well, the Bible clearly says, I don't know, I think I think when we were in the seminars, Justin gave the example of icons. So some traditions are very anti-images of, mm-hmm. of Christ. And there was a theologian who was speaking against the, the uh, images of Christ and saying the reason God said that we can't have images of, you know, any representations of, of God, it's in the Ten Commandments. And the reason is because images do this, this, and this, and it makes you forget about Christ divinity altogether. And it makes you, and that's something that the, you know, cognitive sciences could actually look at. Well, does looking at images of Christ, like make you, make you think less about Christ divinity or is that actually something that happens over time or, you know, is there any correlation? So, but then if you're like, no, actually there's not a correlation. You might go, you go back to your theology, you go back to the Bible and say, hey, did we get this right? The same thing with the example of the age of the earth. If you find the consensus among scientists that the earth is very old, but you were taught in your tradition that the earth was very young, you you might, you know, once you're convinced of this scientific consensus, you go back to your theology, you go back to scripture and you say, is there room for other kinds of interpretations? And you just kind of know, like, if if the world that we're observing is the same world in which, that God inhabits, then we're not going to have an issue. We're not going to actually, once we, you know, we're not going to have a fight over, there won't be two truths. There will be, there'll be one truth in that. Does that make sense? It, what I'm saying? Unfortunately, somewhat recently is people I know who want to raise their children God's way, which that's kind of evangelical speak for a particular method. Yeah. Okay. When I was a kid growing kids, God's way was huge. And actually my mom hated it and there was like all these fights between all the moms because it had to do a lot with like letting your like letting your kid cry and not responding to them and she thought it was really cruel and and spanking all the time lots of spanking and and here's where the research will tell you no 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 (laughs) this actually does not lead to a good way of raising children and so that's that that's it's sort of this this may not be cognitive science or religion stuff but it's an example of how Look, our, well, they're, our, and they're calling it God's way. They're calling it God's way. And we can just say, do, do you think God and psychology and maybe God and reality are, are not in concert with each other? Because, right. you know, raising children this way actually ends up very badly. Right. And we have data. 
Right. And we can hedge and say, okay, scientists, science isn't, I don't know, like a monolith where if, if science literacy is, is not, it's not mm -hmm. great in, in this country. So, I mean, and even where... yeah, even dis distinguishing between different different types of of science and different practices and different levels of maturity among sciences, right? And I like to poke fun at Laird every now and then about you know replica replication challenges in psychology, where you know it it is hard to know with with a high degree of certainty in any case you know whether or not you are successful in describing the thing you want to measure and whether or not what you've measured is in fact getting the results that you that you think are are significant and then to repeat them doesn't mean that there's nothing to see here it's just that as Laird is prone to say it psychology is harder than physics because human beings are more complicated than electrons and there's there's this sense that it, it is a human endeavor you know science is a human a human endeavor but so is theology. Mm -hmm. And so th there's a sense, I mean, some people like to say, well, theology, you know, tells us truth and science is just sort of man's just, you know, trying to attempt. I, I, of course, you just cringe both at the sexism of the statement, but also cringe at this belief that somehow theology happens without humans, that, that people without sin do theology. So I, I need to I need to guard my heart here that I don't get onto a, lo a long and profanity laced tirade. So I'm I'm going to you know take my chill pill, but there it's sometimes said in in theological circles, uh, kind of exactly what Laird just said or a version of it, and as kind of evidence for the the superiority of theology to science, they'll point to ways in which science has changed over time, where you know there uh, a theory that was once held to be kind of accurate in every respect winds up getting. Uh, replaced with a, a better theory or it's shown to be inadequate or certain statements observations that were seen to, thought to be accurate were to, were later falsified and and different things and so sometimes that's that's lifted up as as a somehow showing that science is inferior to, to theology which you know may or may not have changed for hundreds of years in certain key areas and my own response to that is just well that's because within you know scientific methods you have kind of this built-in self-corrective feature where the truth will find you out. And over time, given enough, you know, enough time and enough people of, of intelligence and goodwill kind of working on problems, if you're, if you're, you know, the science is kind of connected or constrained by the way the world is in ways that theological systems don't seem to be. And so then what, what kind of self-correcting feature of theology is there to help the theologian know when she's made a mistake, right? Or when she's made an error. And I think one of, and, and that gets harder to answer in, in theological contexts, but I do actually think that one of the ways that, one of the tools that's available to the theologically minded to kind of act as a bit of a check or a constraint on, on theologizing is in fact data from science, right? Where if we do have, you know, claims that are made about how the world is that are actually testable, well then, you know, one check on your theology is to actually use our best practices to test those claims. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here we are. I do want to just throw in that as a sort of a, a research psychologist, my theology, it's not a one-way ticket. My science, it's not just that my science impacts my theology, my theology also impacts my science. And that's, you know, they, they, it needs to be a recursive process. 
because, and that's one of those cases where we have scientific results that sometimes people go, wait a minute, let's take a closer look at that. And theological sort of commitments lead to a closer look at the science and end up actually changing the science. So, and, you know, I'll just give you one example was that in the 1970s, there were quite a few psychologists who said that religion is bad for people, that it, it actually leads to a lot of mental health problems. And Albert Ellis, a famous clinical psychologist, said that really a good therapist, if you have a religious client, one of your jobs is to help get rid of, help them get rid of those delusions of religion, because religion is bad mental health. Of course, people of faith who were psychologists said, just a minute, let's look at the data, and then started doing research. And then it came out that, oh, well, people who are active in their faith live longer and are healthier and have children who end up with uh, better sort of outcomes. It's a little hard to say that religion is bad for your mental health, when on all the measures we can use, it actually leads to people who are healthier. So that that's an example, maybe not a great one, but that's an example of where, wait a minute, theological commitments also affect the science by helping us to ask better questions. Do you have an example, Laird, where the traffic has gone the other way, where science has caused you to re revisit some theology and maybe kind of, in, you know, move the goalposts for you in some kind of theological territory? Sure. And this is one of those things where before I started teaching at a Christian college, I just simply assumed that humans have a body and a soul that are just separate. Then I came to a Christian college and had theologians here kind of look me in the eye and say, I'm not so sure that's good theology, Laird. That's when I started kind of looking at cognitive science issues and seeing that we're really pretty unified as a being. That there's not a little, there's not good evidence for a strong dualism. Now I'm I'm a little agnostic about a very weak dualism, but I'm much more amenable to notions of a unitary self. And that's informed by my science, but then supported by a certain theological position that says, look, the, the strong dualism is a Greek notion imposed on our theology and doesn't arise out of our theology. And so that, that's an example where the, the science has, has kind of pushed on my theology and now I'm, I'm at, a, at a different place. And of course, at one point, I was a pretty strong fundamentalist and young earth creationist. So that, of course, changed once I went to graduate school and started yeah. studying stuff. Then there's some related questions that come pretty fresh off of that, the, that line of questioning with regards to original sin, which is, yes. was like a very big deal in the Christian tradition. But then you're like, wait, how does that work exactly? How does that if work? <laughs> and so there, there, and and that that process is kind of exciting to be watching. I, I love reading theologians grapple with a new understanding of what we mean by sin, original sin in the fall, because the traditional Augustinian formulations are kind of running against the trouble. Yeah, there, yeah, I think that's important to note that people aren't going well. Shoot. Guess we can't, you know, people are coming uh, up with some- we have to some, abandon that theology. No. Right, people are coming up with some interesting creative mm -hmm. ideas or ways to think about well, and, and revisiting and just kind of re-reading re the texts in the light of the science allows us to see them anew. Because I always assume that we, we have not plumbed the depths of scripture or Christian tradition 
and science helps give us some new tools to plumb the depths. Yeah, there are some ways in which you know you, you want to be careful about you know kind of a, a false basis, fal falsely based kind of hubris. But at the same time, we do have some tools available to us that they didn't have centuries ago when it comes through thinking a, a range of theological topics. Even even when it comes to biblical studies, one of the things that I, I mean, we in in some ways are in a better position to understand the ancient Near Eastern world today than they were two centuries ago. And this is as a result of uh, archeological discoveries or even, even you know, a millennia ago. In, and this is in, in a consequence of, of just, you know, the, the science of biblical studies kind of advancing. And I think similarly, when it comes to the, the range of things that we have available to us through both natural and social science, it, these are these are tools that that can that can help us. Yeah. People are always really looking for certainty, and it takes sort of some courage and humility to stay kind of soft. To I keep thinking of the Big Lebowski line, which is one of my favorite movies, where he's like, "New information has come to light, man!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> and to be constantly doing that, you're like, "Dang, I have to put myself in this with a a little bit of intellectual humility at all times to be able to take in some new theological ideas or new scientific finding, findings that seem pretty significant or something like that." I have. Uh... I have six rules for critical thinking that I gave, give my students at the beginning of most semesters. And rule number one is, because you're not God, it is inevitable that you're wrong about something you think you're right about. That, that's just rule number one. And, and just kind of that, that recognition of, it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's not even just sort of probable or possible, it is inevitable that we're wrong about something and, and we think we're right about it. And so if, if you just kind of walk with that knowledge, then it, 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 it kind of leads to a sense of you hold your truths just a little bit more lightly. And I think that's the best way because it's not about what I believe. It's about the fact that I've been chosen by God. So uh, I will allow God to be the one who uh, is the arbiter of truth. And I will just kind of walk this journey knowing that it's not up to me. But I think you hit on it, Siri, when you said that, you know, there's a real attraction to certainty, right? And, you know, there are psychological reasons for that. And it's, I mean, it takes, it takes more work to deal with uncertainty than it does in a, a simple world where everything fits in a box. And we don't have, you know, in a lot of times and places, the, the luxury of time to, to, to not have an answer about something, right? And, and so there's that there's that that's just kind of there, there's a center of gravity towards certainty that I think we need to resist in or and at least be aware of you know and and to be able to 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 navigate that space in community with others who may think differently I think is is a, a way to help that if we could just sort of rewind a little bit back and maybe connect this back to when we were talking about system one dual processing ideas where you had made the the comment to me earlier Myron about the reflective system one stuff doesn't mean it's better and neither does system two. It's not better or worse. They're just sort of different. So maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of the dialogical relationship between the two, you know, like I, I have a baby and I, she doesn't know how to talk yet. She's almost one, but she sometimes repeats sounds back to me and she knows the dog says woof and she's with much intellectual effort will just focus and, and say woof. 
but I can tell it's it's not coming easy. She has to think about how to what shape to make her mouth, you know, when she does that. But now my first language being English is a system one thing, right? Like I don't think about, you know, how to form words or move my tongue when I'm talking to y'all. So if you guys could just comment on that sort of area. Yeah, a couple of things just to kind of pick up where you where you started and just this idea that just because something is authorized by system two doesn't mean that it that it's necessarily more likely to be true. And just because something, you know, emerges out of these these kind of quick and intuitive processes doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that it's that it's wrong or leading us away from from accurate kind of descriptions of, of the world. And sometimes, in fact, suppose you have some belief about the world that really just comes to you in a quick and automatic way based on you interacting with your environment. And then and then someone maybe challenges that and say, well, why do you think that that's true? And then you ask yourself, well, why do I think that it's true? And you engage in some reflective processes. There's all sorts of interesting research Research, depending on the type of question that it is, uh, especially when it comes to questions about morality or values, where it's like, you know, you're looking for the first available reason to kind of authorize what you've already thought is true about the world. And as soon as you latch onto it, your, your system too says, okay, done here, nothing more to see. And that isn't necessarily the best practice for performing truths about the world. And in fact, now it's almost worse because not only has it, is it given to you by system one, but it's like encased in system two pedigree. And now you feel like it's a, a more impervious to, to revision over time. So it can't be revised over time. So that's, right. so that's, that's kind of one way in which like we, we need to kind of, and this is one of the dangers of system one, system two kind of thinking where you, where sometimes if it's, if it's, understood incorrectly, people think system one bad, system two good, but it's it's more complicated than that. And and they are recursive and, and influence each other. System one can inform system two, but obviously system two really kind of can transform and, and shift system one as well. And so that's one of those things where you can train your intuitions. And here's now, Gan, where your earlier question about are we being manipulative? Well, our we are training our intuitions all the time. And so here's where it, we may have to think about, well, exactly how am I wanting to train these intuitions? How do I want them to work? And so this kind of interactive recursive nature of these ways of thinking lead us to have to, now, and granted, this is, this is system two stuff because we have to be reflective about this. And so there is something important about being reflective, but if your reflections ignore the importance of your intuitions, then you've, you've missed how this works. I think it's it's interesting to think though too about there's there's different types of goals that we have and if you think about the different types of of mental tools or cognitive processes that we have you know they're geared towards different things right and and you know having accurate beliefs about your environment is is one goal but that's not the only goal that there is for the various kind of mental tools that we have and you know if reflectively we want to seek after truth then we need to kind of filter through what is our kind of you know, what are the cognitive mechanisms that we have geared towards and how do those goals line up with this other goal that we might have of having true beliefs about the environment, you know? I think it's funny that laughing with people causes group cohesion. And I, <laughs> I asked <laughs> I asked Justin about that. Well, why we find things funny is very, is probably psychologically interesting and complicated. And I asked Justin about that. I'm like, what's the evolutionary reason for laughing? He's like, well, it builds group cohesion but i'm like 
That is so such a silly. Well, and and what's really disconcerting about that particular thing is if you ever watch video of people at a party and you can hear what they're saying and watch them laughing, it's disturbing because the stuff they're laughing at isn't funny. And it's, it's, they're, they're, it's like, this is a social contagion going on here. And, and, you know, and then every once in a while, some will start laughing and you can tell, oh, that's really uncomfortable. But the laughter is this, just this important sort of connection we make with other people saying, I am not angry with you. I am trying to be a part of your group. I am connecting with you. And so mm -hmm. the laughter is sort of a signal that we are not being aggressive. This is a safe space. Yes. <laughs> that we are not, I am not being aggressive. I am not being aggressive. <laughs> I read that because my dog does this like fake sneeze. It's like, no, he's not really sneezing. What? He's just like, Ch -ch -ch. you know, it's like uh, something chihuahuas do a lot actually. And we looked it up and it said that it's a way that they signal, I'm not really fighting you, I'm playing. It's because it's like when you play with a dog and you pretend you're fighting, you know? And so the chihuahua, so that's what it, that's like their version of laughter, I guess. <laughs> the, I'm not being aggressive, I'm just sneezing and then, you know, we're going to play a little bit or whatever. <laughs> so now we're way off the rails. But that's still digging into system one, system two it's, here. It's that's cute. It's cute too. And, and why do we perceive things as cute? That's another psychological question. I have. Because it's, 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 a, it's an objective property that objects have. We just see it in the world. Some things are just cute. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but what makes it? It's to keep parents from abandoning their children on hillside. Well, that's true, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I want to take care of my child because she's cute. But like, why are like tiny things cute also? Like just in general, like, I guess it just went too far. Like it keeps bleeding out onto just like tiny things. <laughs> See, it's, it's worse that system one then just gets overactive. And right, it's like a byproduct on. or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's tiny. Therefore, it's, it's not dangerous. It's cute. It's um, cute, and I should take care of it. I should take care of it. It's, <laughs> tiny. it's like a child. I should take care of it. Oh, look, this animal has large eyes. It must be nice. And if you watch, if you look at Disney characters, you can always tell whether a Disney character is a good character or a bad character by the size of the eyes. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so, like, horses are beautiful. Uh, ponies are cute. You get a mini pony. Now this is, like, ticking all the boxes. Yeah. Right? I'm one of those people who thinks chihuahuas are just, like, they're, Careful, Laird. Careful. It's just, you know, it's a cat that's looked dressed. He like can't a dog. hear you. He can't hear you. <laughs> He's sleeping. Well, sorry we went a little long, but this was so good. I think. Is there anything else you guys thought we should say, or just Theopsych is awesome and is a gift that keeps on giving, and just excited to see the future of Theopsych projects and just how it brings a diverse kind of group of people together around kind of common interests, both on the research side, but also in the application. And it's uh, it's a cool, cool kind of space to, to be in. What he said, this was <laughs> delightful. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by Blueprint 1543. Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion. <laughs>